ourselves like loons are being a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're asking this morning, what is the church? That answer comes in a number of different ways in the New Testament that all modify and deepen and enrich each other. But we have here one of the clearest pictures given us of what the church is, and it comes from Simon Peter himself, who, as Chad just read to us in Matthew 16, actually answered correctly when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, knowing him well, said, you didn't come up with this on your own. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And you will be known now, not as Simon, but as as Peter, as this rock. And on the rock of this confession, that I, Jesus, am the Christ, on that rock, not Peter, but on the rock of the confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Peter, who was named the rock by Jesus, has reflected on all of those texts in the Old Testament that point ahead to one who will come and be a living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious, as was read in our first lesson, Psalm 118. And as he reflects on that and realizes our place within the church, he wants us to understand something that we know at one level, but our very way of speaking and thinking about the church may well cause us to forget. So when I say, church, what do you first think of? I confess that I, by default, tend to think of a particular church building on a particular corner that meets at a particular time. We say, let's go to church, or I think I may have left my jacket at church, or are the kids still at church? I mean, we speak of the buildings as the church, and if you love beautiful architecture as much as I do, you may revel in the sort of Gothic cathedrals that we have in the West or in stately city churches with their spires lifting our eyes up and causing us, helping us to think transcendently of the things of God. And they can be a tremendous aid, but they're not what the New Testament ever meant by the church. The early Christians the Christians of the New Testament and those who followed them for the first three centuries at least, 
certainly knew of the magnificence of the temple in Jerusalem, even though by 70 AD it had been destroyed. They knew of the simple and yet often quite beautiful synagogues, and they certainly had seen plenty of classically beautiful pagan temples that filled the Roman Empire. So they knew of buildings designed and built for worship, but when they said church, they meant something entirely different. And we are not helped, I don't want to get off on a discourse on this, but we are not helped by the fact that the New Testament writers nearly always were quoting, not from the Hebrew scriptures, even though they were Jews, but they were quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so words are translated in our Old Testaments. We have a translation of the Hebrew. And so when it speaks of God's people gathering in the Old Covenant, it's usually called the assembly or the congregation. But in the Greek translation that the rabbis did and that our New Testament people had in front of them, the word was ekklesia, which is the called out. In the New Testament, the word translated church is ekklesia. It's the same word as was used throughout the Old Testament of the Old Covenant community. When did the church begin? It began in the Old Covenant. There's a continuity of the people of God. It is not a place. They built a tabernacle and then a magnificent temple. But the church was the people of God. And we, if we think of it this way, if we realize what this is, it begins to change everything about our own self-understanding and about the way that we think about this church of which the scripture tells us the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so there are three moves that uh, I want us to underscore in the verses that we read. And the first is that Peter says that the church is a spiritual house that is built with living stones. A spiritual house. Now, what does that mean? How are we to understand it? And its relationship to the places where we worship. Whenever I'm back in Knoxville, at some point, I will find myself in the part of Knoxville where I lived for over 30 years and raised my children and was a family and have most of my family memories. And so I will always, if I have time, cut down a particular road and turn and drive past the house where we raised our children. And as I do, I'm flooded with memories. But that's not, it's someone else's home. It isn't my home anymore. I simply have memories there. I have a home. My home here is with those whom I love. Whatever building we are occupying, we call it our home, but that's not the home because when we're not there, it's just a house. 
We sold it, it's someone else's. But it was once a home, when it was filled with us. The first time I came in here, met with the session members and was walking around and we were talking about whether perhaps the Lord was calling me here to be with you for a time. I walked in this room, I looked around. It was, I thought, you know, probably built at this time. It was a room designed for worship. I didn't think of it as the church. But now during the week, when I come in here to pray, it's different because now it's filled with you, the living stones whom Christ has called to this place and is joining together to the chief cornerstone, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. That's who we are, first of all. He's describing a temple in which God lives. And he says, you're that temple, not just as individuals. First Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? But in chapter 3, when he says, don't you know that you, you all, we would say in Tennessee, y'all, <laughs> y'all are God's house, God's temple. And if anyone destroys it, God will destroy him. He's speaking in plural terms. He's speaking to the church. He's saying in the midst of the wicked city of Corinth, filled with temples to all the gods of the Greco-Roman culture, you are to be God's alternative to Corinth because you are his temple. He inhabits you as a people. That's what he's telling us here. We are the living stones in which, as we are together in Christ, joined to him. Paul's word that he uses here, or his metaphor, is the body. But it's the same thing. It's being joined to Christ, being one with him. And when we think of it in that way, we realize these two elements. One, I have to realize that we, we just have had uh, another group of people that are looking at becoming members. Thank God. Thank you all and are considering coming in to this particular fellowship, making vows and uh, taking promises, becoming part of this. And it's that deep connection. But the reason they're doing it is because they're already joined to us through Christ. They are formalizing what Christ has done. And when you and I get divided with each, from each other and get angry with each other and get in conflict. It doesn't mean we can't have principled disagreements, but the way that we are to have them is to be entirely different because first of all, we're living stones in the same building. I don't want to be in a building where the stones are fighting against each other. It's going to all fall down. So this unity that comes from being joined to Christ and joined to one another, he describes as living stones. But a building is built for a purpose and God builds his building for a purpose. And he tells us in the next move, the next picture, what that purpose is. And he says, now you are holy priests ministering in that living spiritual building. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I just go, ouch, because if there's anything that I don't feel like on almost any given day, it's a holy priest. I'm so aware of my own brokenness and rebellion and sin and 
all that that I have to, by God's grace, keep taking to him. And it, it's wonderful because it, uh, it's, it's impossible to be proud and arrogant if you know yourself well. That applies to anybody. Because we may fool each other, but we know in the depths of our heart all of our own stuff. And we realize again the majesty of God's grace and all that he's forgiven us. And yet he says, you are holy priests ministering in that place. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the old covenant priests were holy by virtue of two things. One, by inheritance. You had to belong to a particular family. You had to be not just Levitical family, but of one particular family within that, of Aaron's family. The other Levites served in other ways, but to be the priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron and, and Aaron's son. And you had to go through ritual. You were washed, you were sprinkled, you were set apart, you wore particular garments. You had to keep yourself clean from, you couldn't touch anything that was unclean or you had to go through another series of rituals. Holiness was a matter of inheritance and ritual. Because holy means, we think of holy as being super good, but holy means set apart, different from that which is common. That's why God is thrice holy. I, I've told you before, for all my love and respect of R.C. Sproul, the one place where I disagreed with him, he called it God's supreme attribute, and I believe that it was the perfection of all of his attributes. His love is different from ours because it is a holy love. His justice because it's a holy justice, etc. So the holiness is the way that you are different from the common. You're now set apart, made holy. You are sacred. And that's what it means to be a saint. That's why in the New Testament, every one of us is considered a saint. Paul writes to the saints in the church. He doesn't mean those that are specially good. I, uh, you may remember that story of, um, wasn't Tozer, it was one of the presidents of Moody Bible Institute, the one who went out and started Biola in Los Angeles, and uh, Tory, R.A. Tory. And Tory was on a train ride, and he was sitting with a group of Roman Catholic nuns, and he found them delightful. They're all talking, they're all laughing. And finally, when he felt he'd won their trust, he said, would you like to meet a saint? I mean a real saint. And they said, oh, yes, that would be the greatest honor of all. He said, I can arrange that. They said, really? How? He said, you're looking at him. St. Harry, you have met. Well, they were horrified until he opened the scriptures and showed them that the saints are the people of God who have been set apart by God for his purposes. Brothers, sisters, young people, old people, everything between no matter what you've done, no matter how you may view yourself as too broken to be used by God or your gifts as too limited or your time as too big, God has made you his for this moment in time and you bring to the church of Jesus Christ a unique matrix of gifts that has never ever been and will never be again. You are as unique as the proverbial snowflake. And he has called you for this, to be his holy priests. One of the most beautiful 
biblical doctrines rediscovered in the Reformation in the 16th century was just that. When people throughout Europe were enthralled to a whole system of trying to get out of purgatory and get to know God, Luther and others stood and preached from the scripture the priesthood of all believers. We don't go to God through our pastors or through our parents. We don't go to God through people who've lived particularly holy lives that we admire. We don't go to God through even his blessed and beloved mother Mary. We go through the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We have access and therefore we pray for one another. How do we exercise this? I'll go fast. Two ways. One is in worship because that brings us to the third point. We are holy priests serving in a spiritual house which is built with us as living stones and we are called in this text to offer spiritual sacrifices. What are those? Two things, our worship and our witness. And our witness involves everything. It's our whole life, our lives. Paul in Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, to present your bodies, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your, I would expect him to say, physical service, spiritual service. Paul says, what is the most spiritual thing that you and I can do? What is the, the holiest act that we can make? It's to tell God, I'm yours, right down to the, to the soles of my feet, from my, in my case, my bald head, to the soles of my feet. This is all yours. That's my spiritual act of worship. I'm giving him myself. I'm saying just as Jesus came and gave you skin to walk this earth, I invite you to walk this earth through me and as I'm connected with my brothers and sisters, will you fill us and, and let us first demonstrate this in our worship? I don't know how careful you are in sort of studying the service that David Burge puts together, but the songs that he chooses flow together into the themes that we'll be studying in the scripture just as I seek to find scriptures that fit one another and modify one another. The music is prepared to give us expression of worship to God in all of the very elements that we will be seeking to learn from God. Worship is not coming and saying, well, I like this preacher or I don't like this preacher or I like the music or I don't like the music. Or the... It is where we come together and do that for which we were created, worship. And anyone who doubts that we were made for worship just needs to go to a, a football game or to a rock concert and watch the people, all of the postures of worship. There wasn't much of that in Tennessee uh, this past week, but I do know that uh, those of you like Dave Stadler who are Missouri fans were worshiping yesterday. Hands in the air. 
expressions of praise and wonder at the excellencies of what they were seeing. That's what we do when we observe human excellence. It just comes naturally. Why? Because God made us for that. That's how we're wired. We do it at a, a concert if we have permission to do it there. We respond. Brothers and sisters, God made you and me for worship, supremely to worship him. And he wants us when we come together so to worship him that if people come in who are not believers, they will be forced in wonder to, to look around them and say something is going on here. Is God in this place? Could this thing be true? I who'd grown up in a Christian home and had run from the Lord for so many years, when I got out of the service and my older brother conned me basically into going to church with him, and it was a stiff old Scottish First Presbyterian Church, Quincy, Massachusetts, all those Scots who'd come down through Prince Edward Isle, Island, and that organ started, the choir stood up, and those people stood up and put their heads back and began to sing God's praises from the heart. God saved me. I, could, I couldn't tell you what the preacher preached on that Sunday. But that's when he poured out his spirit and made me his. And it was just because I was in the right place where he wanted me. I was in the midst of God's people at worship, brothers and sisters. When we come to worship, it's not just about you and me and our particular tastes and this, that, or the other thing. God wants us to pray him down he inhabits the praises of his people. He wants us to praise him down in spiritual acts of worship as we offer him the sacrifice of praise. And then our lives are to flow from our worship. The quality of our worship will mark the quality of our lives. The way that we learn to praise him together will mark whether our hearts are filled with criticism or praise. Remember who you are. Remember what he made you for. Can you imagine if all of the churches in Annapolis began to desire with one heart and mind not to be competing churches trying to get the, the most nickels and noses, as we used to put it, the most money, the most people. And believe me, I, as a young pastor, I was terribly guilty of it. I, I was serving a church. We began to just explode in numbers. And at General Assembly, they give you your book of statistics. And I grabbed it and then crept off in a corner to kind of go through and look. And I didn't hear my closest friend, Sandy Wilson, walk up behind me and lean over and say, check in your hat size, John. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that is not what the church is about. And we live in a time when we have the biggest churches in American history and the fewest percent of citizens going to church on Sunday. Why? Because we have designed churches to meet consumer tastes. What do we need to give them to bring them in? What do we need to do? And we haven't created disciples. We've created spiritual consumers. And we need to remember who we are and what Christ died to make us. So here's God's word to you and me today by grace. This is a spiritual house meeting here. 
built with living stones like you and me who have come to the living stone, the cornerstone, and found life. He is precious in God's sight. How do we know if we're his? Here's the test. Is he precious in your sight? Is Jesus yet precious to you? If so, find your place within that house as a holy priest offering spiritual sacrifices to the one who made us for himself, for one another, and for the world around us as we show them a taste of the coming kingdom. Would you stand? Would you take a moment and respond to whatever the Lord might be saying to your heart today?